That's a nice loud amen. That's a good start. I, 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 I want to see that happen. Keep continuing. All right, I have just realized that I don't even have my notes up. <laughs> That's not going to help. All right. And, um, sorry, please bear with me. I wasn't, I had all this time to get ready while we were chatting and I, and I didn't even do it. Uh, <clears throat> all right. Do you remember what we covered last week when we were in Judges? We had Judges chapter 10 with, uh, Tola and Jair, but the second half of the chapter was more, a, 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 almost a prologue leading up to chapter 10, which we're looking at today. You know, just as a reminder, Judges is set against the backdrop of uh, the continuing establishment and settlement of Canaan, which was the promised land given to Israel. God had delivered Israel from Egypt, led them up through the wilderness around the back of Moab and through, through um, into the promised land from the east. And Joshua led the conquest of Canaan. When Joshua kicked the bucket, they had done a bunch of the hard work, but there was still more work to go. There was still more to do. But unfortunately, the people of Israel, they kind of got, they got comfortable in what they had, and they got a bit slack. They were satisfied with a partially purged land, and then they grew satisfied with partial submission to their God, Yahweh. Like many of us who start out so well in the Christian faith, in the fervor of spirit and passionate desire to slay sin, wherever it will be found, after a time we grow weary and we relax. We relax into a state of partial submission to God and only follow when it suits us or when we find ourselves in a bind or when the inspiration strikes. We fall into this cycle of submission for a time, and then we wander off into the lust of the flesh and the desires of the heart before we return back to God in a moment of crisis. And this is a cycle that happens in Judges, where the people over generations would, would grow lax and they would do evil in the sight of the Lord, but they would have to suffer for a time before they turn back. And this, this cycle is shown in Judges with the, the refrain, either... Israel did what was right in its own eyes, or Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They wander off, and God sends judgment on them because of their rebellion, as consequences for their actions. And they would be oppressed by their neighbors for a time. And when Israel comes to their senses, realizes what's going on, they turn, they cry out to Yahweh, and they turn away from the gods of the people they were supposed to drive out. And then God raises up a judge a leader to save them out of the hands of their enemies. And after that great salvation that God delivers them, there is peace for a time, usually. There is a moment where uh, everything is right in the world, so to speak. They are serving God, they're free from their enemies, but then before long the cycle continues and they slide back into apostasy. And this book as a whole serves as a helpful and enlightening history of Israel prior to the reign of the kings, like Saul and David and Solomon. But why is it so important for us? 
Why is it so important for us to put ourselves through the pain of all of the recurring problems week after week as we work through it here on, on Sundays? Well, the purpose of that book, the book can be derived from that refrain, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It happens time and time again. The book shows us what happens when people, even the chosen people of God, run off after their own desires. This book shows us why people need a saviour. It shows us why God's people need a saviour just as much as anybody else. God's people are not... um, you know what it's like when, when people think about Christians and they think of the hypocrisy of Christians. Yes, obviously we shouldn't be hypocrites. But the fact that Christians are hypocrites, just like everybody else, points out the need that Christians are not better than anybody. The only thing that sets us apart is that we recognize our need and we went to Jesus to fix it. Yes, God's people should be holy. Yes, we should be set apart but we are always going to be stained by sin. Judges shows what happens when God's people are in a continual cycle of not being set apart, of forsaking their holiness. And it shows us time and again mankind's need for salvation and for true godly leadership. But not just a leader that will die after a few years. We need leaders that will last the distance, that will go on so that we might never fade away from God again. We need deliverance that is everlasting. It shows us time and again how God is providentially working through circumstances, even the vilest of circumstances. God uses the unlikeliest of people as saviours for his special people. If we're looking in uh, the prologue that I mentioned we covered last week, just to to catch you up, we, we have Jephthah, is going to be the main character for our story. I'm going to start calling him Jeff because it's easier than trying to pronounce Jephthah a hundred times over the next few minutes. And plus we're Aussies, so we always give people nicknames. So Jeff, whose proper name is Jephthah, is a, is a guy that is going to feature prominently in this story. And as we covered last week, Judges chapter 10 sets the scene for the story that we read in Judges chapter 11. The last judge, Jair, has died in Israel and the people have once again turned to serve other gods and as, as we saw, they piled up. Not only are they serving the Baals and the Asherim now, they're serving the gods of the Philistines and the Ammonites and all, all the other people who live around them. It's quite a, a mess. But the people of God eventually came to their senses and they repented. They called out to God and God said, you know, you've chosen those gods, why don't you turn to them? Let them save you. But the Israelites repented. They put away their idols and they chose to serve Yahweh and God responds to their repentance. God responds to repentance. And what we saw is that God became impatient over the misery of Israel. God became impatient over the misery of Israel. And so that scene closed with Gilead having been oppressed for 18 years by the Ammonites and the men of Gilead serving Yahweh and looking for a saviour. But instead of waiting for God to give them a saviour, the men of Gilead took it into their own hands and they started basically trying to bribe people to attack Ammon for them. They said, 
Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be judge, head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. It says in verse 18 of chapter 10. So, the men of Gilead are on the lookout for a saviour. But now we turn to the origin story of Jeff. The stage is set for our main protagonist. We cut to Jeff, who is a mighty warrior in Gilead, and the son of a man, strangely enough, named Gilead. And so even though he's a mighty warrior, the son of a well-to-do man, his mother is a prostitute. And so these two things are kind of played off against each other. Like On the one hand, he's a warrior. On the other hand, he's a whore's son. His, his father married and had other sons. So when they were old enough and had the chance, they kicked Jephthah out. They didn't want Jephthah to have a chance at splitting the inheritance with them. They saw him as an illegitimate son, and he carried the shame of his parentage with him. You shall have not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman, it says in verse 2. And so Jeff finds himself in a position that many of us find ourselves in, where we are victims of our circumstance, where, where the reason that we are in this situation is not something that we did to ourselves. Oftentimes, we are responsible for what happens to us, but sometimes things like our parentage, the place that we were born, um, these things are not in our control. And so these are victims of their circumstances. People can look down on us because of those circumstances. And so in some sense, we carry around some shame for something that is not ours, not, not something that we did. You might have uh, relatives that have committed awful crimes you, 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 there might be other shameful deeds that your uh, people you might be related to did, but you had nothing to do with. But there is a sense of shame that is, that is connected with that in some ways. But as we see, God can use anyone he likes, regardless of their circumstances, regardless of the shame that is theirs through um, reasons that are not their own choice. Regardless of your circumstances, God can use you. Our God is bigger than our shame. He's bigger than the, the mistakes that we have made or others have made. Our God is bigger and he doesn't see these things as a roadblock to union with him. For the time being, shame will be a part of our broken world, but shame will not separate us from God and his people. But as for Jeff, he's exiled from his family, he's forced out, and he goes to find a place for himself. And so he ends up in a place called Tob, which is out to the east. And yes, I, you, you can see some coloured lines there. There's a blue spot down here. This is um, uh, the Red Sea, I think. And up here we've got the Lake of Galilee. That's, that's just at the top there. This region over here is the, where Nazareth will be many, many years later. So this blue line shows the direction to Tob. So um, uh, Jeff comes from this region down here in Gilead, but he's been he's chuffed it all the way off the edge of the map there. He's head out to the east. And so here he is, exiled from his family, and he begins to gather a posse of bandits around him. The text simply says he lived in the land of Tob and worthless fellows collected around Jeff and went out with him. 
or scoundrels, as the NIV says. And so this is, this is like a pack of adventurers. They were possibly mercenaries or raiders who would make a living by being paid to be the muscle for others. But, you know, these guys are going to be rough around the edges, to say the least. But Jeff collects this group around him, I think in part because he's been raised in his father's house, he has a bit of culture and discipline, and so along with his skills as a warrior, he's a natural-born leader, as they would say. And so while Jeff is off in the wilderness for years, the Ammonites are oppressing Gilead on his home soil. They're building their forces and trying to make incursions into Israel, west of the Jordan. These red lines here, you can see, are basically tracing out where the Ammonites would have been coming in from the east across into Ephraim and Benjamin. So Jeff's rallies are still in Gilead, and they're fleeing, they're feeling the pinch from Ammon. And now it seems that uh, Jeff's brothers are old enough that they're part of the leadership structure of Gilead. And so the elders of Gilead, they go looking for somebody to help them fight against the Ammonites and lead a rebellion against Ammon. And so where do they go? They look in the most unlikely place. They look to the brother of the illegitimate son, sorry, the, the, the illegitimate son, their brother, they may have heard of his exploits in the west, in the east, sorry. They, they know that he's a mighty warrior. And so they go in person to plead with him, to seek him to help them out. And we see this awkward exchange take place between the elders and Jeff. Come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Do you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that's why we've turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And so Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, you bring me home to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. So Jeff's obviously a little bit unsure about this whole situation. He's like, are you going to trick me? Uh, do you really want me back? You guys kicked me out and now you want me when it's convenient for you? But he doesn't act out of malice, I don't think. I th he could have told them to get lost and he could have just gone on enjoying his own life there as, a, as an adventurer. But he does agree to come back. And in some sense, it almost feels like a reconciliation. He's going to be reunited with his family. He's going to be valued. He's going to be honoured in a way that he was not before. And so I think that it's appealing to him. And... There is the upside, of course, that they're offering him power. You can be our boss. You can be the chieftain. You can be the, the leader, the governor, if you come back and defeat them. But interestingly enough, Jephthah recognises that it's not going to be up to him as to whether or not he gets victory. What does he say there in verse 9? If you bring me home and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. Jephthah has a trust in the Lord. And this is a wonderful sign because of what we've experienced in Judges so far. We, we're always wondering about where these judges stand in relation to the Lord. And here is a judge who says, if the Lord, he's trusting in God. So Jeph travels back to Mizpah in Gilead and he appears to enter into a covenant with them. Because it says he spoke all these words before the Lord in Mizpah. So they must have entered into a covenant and then he's getting... Um, 
payment up front, so to speak, because he gets installed as the leader then. But then we move to the next chapter of the story, the diplomacy, the diplomacy. So Jephthah thinks, let's start out with diplomacy. He sends off messengers to ask, what's the deal? Why are you attacking us? What is the problem? And Ammon soon responds, you stole the land from us and we want it back. And Ammon goes to outline their claim about the area of the land that they think belongs to them. And they reckon they owned a whole heap of land right out to the Jordan River, which is up and down the middle in the map. But Jephthah writes back and he lays out all of the reasons why their claim was null and void. He responds with some firm arguments. He says, firstly, some of that land was not yours to begin with. And then next he says, as we journeyed up from Egypt, we asked politely to go around, let's go through Edom, and we were refused. And then we asked not politely to go through Moab, and we were refused. And then we asked politely to go through the Amorite land, and they attacked us. So God gave the land of the Amorites. Remember, the Amorites are different to the Ammonites that we are talking about where the Amorites were part of what the Canaanites were doing. Um, Edom, Moab and Ammon were distant relays of the Israelites. And so by God's grace, they were left alone. The Ammonites were left alone. The Amorites were lumped in with the Canaanites. I hope that's not confusing. (laughs) So God gave Israel the land of the Amorites, but Ammon is now trying to say that that was their land. No, no, the Amorites were there, not the Ammonites. So they're trying to claim land that wasn't theirs to begin with. And Jeff says, look, not only was this not your land, God gave this land to us. If this land was yours, then surely Chemosh, your God, would be able to give it to you. But our God gave it to us. Now, just a little aside here, when we're talking about God's in the scriptures, we're talking about these gods aren't necessarily just made up completely fictional beings. So, for instance, just think about this, God says, we talk about God as the God of gods and the King of kings. And what we mean by that, we don't mean that uh, when we say King of kings, we understand that he is literally the king over kings. We see kings in the world, but he is the king over all of them. But the same thing goes for the spiritual world. There are some kind of beings that are sometimes called gods, but God is the God over all of them. And we saw in the, in the scriptures, for instance, in Deuteronomy 32, we're told that when God split up the world, the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. He divided mankind and fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. So he chose Israel for himself and he basically handed over the other nations to other spiritual beings to look after as Israel was his treasured possession. And so, but these other sons of God, sometimes just referred to as gods, they were rebellious and they started to do things like accept worship from the people that should have been given to God. And later, especially in Psalm 82, we see that God judges these other gods for them not leading the people the way that God would have them do. They were evil, they were rebellious, you might call them demonic, they were in rebellion against God. And so, 
as Israel is coming through and overthrowing and defeating all these other peoples and their gods, it's spiritual warfare. As they come in and they, they take on the Canaanites and they defeat the Canaanites, it's basically saying your god Baal is nothing. And here again, it's spiritual warfare. Jeff's saying your god Chemosh is nothing. And so this is an, a, another sign of God being the God of gods, the Lord of lords. And so God gives his inheritance to his people. We can be reminded here that God is the ultimate power in this world and nothing can stand against him. So when he makes promises to his people about their inheritance, you can be sure that he will fulfill his promise. But Ammon won't listen to Jeff's arguments. Even though Jeff has laid it all out clearly, he's laid out the history, he's given them uh, a few reasons why their claim is invalid, he now, they'd say, we don't care. They wanted, they had a story in their mind about what they thought belonged to them. They needed a reason for what they were doing. They'd convinced themselves of the reason and they were going on with that despite what the evidence said. It's kind of what we see I mean, it's a, it's a, we're not, we're not going to get political, but what I want to say is that we see this in border disputes around the world today, where there's this group of people say that this part of the land belongs to them, and these people say, no, we have a claim to the land, and then we have overlapping and competing claims for different reasons. And then there is wars that are still going on, and in, you might think of the Balkans and the, the kind of the, the, the frozen wars in those places where there's some people who live in one country, but they're not citizens of that country because they're not accepted and they should be kicked out and you know it's it's a big mess we know we know what this is like where there is competing claims to the land but in this case everything is cleared up it's all very clear because god said this was the land of the israelites those 12 tribes this was their land god was dispossessing the other nations Ammon didn't believe they had the right to the land, not, despite not actually having historical claim to it, but they were willing to go to war over that, despite being proved to the contrary. But next we see the triumph and tragedy. The war is on now, obviously. Ammon's not going to hold back. They're not convinced. So Jeff is off to war. But he's going off to war with the spirit of the Lord. He's exhausted his dip diplomatic roots. And so now he... he calls the army together. Now, presumably, there's some time that happens between these events. Remember that it probably took months to get these messages and send them back and forth. They didn't have email. They didn't have telephones. There was somebody who took a piece of paper and literally walked over there and gave it. So there would have been time taken to go back and forth with these messages between Jephthah and Ammon. But Jeph is... He's been set up at home in Mizpah, and he's been installed as leader. He calls together the armies to go to battle. And as this is happening, we're told in verse 29, the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. So even though Jephthah is not kind of chosen, like in the way that Gideon was, with an angel that came and met Gideon and say, hey, I've got this job for you. Even though Jephthah is in some sense chosen by the people, God honors that. God works with that. God works with Jephthah. He sends his spirit upon Jeff. And so he is now acting in God as God's chosen instrument. 
It shows us, as unlikely as it was, the whore's son, come bandit ringleader, was the chosen saviour of Gilead, being led by God to victory. But here he makes a rash vow. He starts to bargain with God. Even though he had the spirit of the Lord, Jeffs makes a horrible mistake. Because in a bid to secure God's favour, he makes a promise, one that he would come to regret in time. He promises, if you'll give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So what Jeff is trying to do here is twist God's arm. I'll do something nice for you if you do something nice for me. I'll give you whatever comes out of my house. I don't know what he was expecting. Uh, we, we probably do expect that it was a kind of a, a courtyard or something around the house. It's likely that there was livestock there and that he expected some sheep or goats or cattle, something to come out of the house. But it's such a wide vow that there is a full expectation that it could possibly be a person that comes out of the house to meet him when he comes back. It was certainly rash to vow this, to vow whatever. And God doesn't respond to this. We don't hear God responding in the text. And Jeff trundles off to war. So then on, uh, Jeff goes off to war. He fights. He's, God is with Jeff and his forces and they drive the Ammonites out city by city. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them and the Lord gave them into his hand and he struck them from Aroah in the neighbourhood of Minith, 20 cities as far as abel Keriamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. You can see the, you, you can't see, but there's yellow lines down here showing the direction of the, all the different routes they had to take to um, attack the Ammonites. So then Jeff is on his way back home He's coming up to his house as the triumphant saviour to his people. And who should come out to meet him but his only daughter? She comes out with joy, celebrating her father's victory. But then he remembered his vow and is brought to mourning as he realises that he's promised now to sacrifice his own daughter. This is an awful, terrible state of affairs that Jeff has put himself in. Because Jeff is now caught between a rock and a hard place. He's caught between either I break my vow to God or I kill my daughter. It's It's not a position that anybody wants to put themselves in. And you can see here, though, how highly Jephthah holds his word. He knows that this is serious. You can't just promise something to God and then turn around and say, oh, nah, this this cost is too high. He's faced with the option of dishonouring his own word or sacrificing his daughter. And so we know that neither of these is an acceptable option. The Bible clearly states that you should not sacrifice people, let alone your own kids, and you must keep your vows. So what is he going to do? And here, the one with the wisdom, the, the one who is the, the, uh, the example worth emulating in this little situation, here his daughter is the one who speaks this wonderful truth. My father, you've opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. 
now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, the Ammonites. And so this girl has more piety than her father. She was willing to lay down her life and the prospect of ever being married and having kids and enjoying the good things of the world so that she could help her father keep his promises. Now, I wonder, next time you're thinking about, uh, you know, teaching some children about honouring their parents, is this going to be the text that you come to? If ever there was a woman who could say that they have honoured their mother and father, it's Jeff's daughter. It's uncomfortable, but it's admirable that her submission to her God-given authority was to give up her life, even like Isaac was willing to give up his life when Abraham went to sacrifice him. Jeff ran off his mouth, and now there's tragedy and horror. I, I don't think that this text tells us what the right thing to do is. You're not meant to go here and go, oh, look, isn't Jephthah a good example? No, he's a terrible example because of his rash vow. Now he ends up in this situation. It ends in tragedy and horror. It shows us as, as something of an object lesson of what happens when we make such promises. But this is an excellent time to remind ourselves on the of what responsibility means. If there's a responsibility on your shoulders as a leader, in family, in your church, anyone who's in a position of authority, uh, in, perhaps in work, in society, if you have been given authority, you've got to be careful what you do with it. Your actions have consequences that affect those under you, especially for those you hold dear. You don't just get to run off and make the brash choices and say, look, I'm in charge, I can do what I want. No, what you do affects those whom you're responsible for. Your sin can destroy lives. Now, we can only assume what the state of affairs was in Israel at that time. Presumably, God's law was not well known and their intermixing with foreign gods had left them in a place of spiritual unhealthiness even if they were trying to follow God at that moment, I think there would have been other issues mixed in there. Potentially, they thought that it was okay to sacrifice a human. But that's not just something that the barbarians did back then. That's what happens in our day, our culture. Our culture does the same thing. But we call it healthcare. People think that it's okay to sacrifice a human life so that you can have future prosperity. Sacrifice of an innocent to further the future goals. I'm not ready right now. But who's the one that suffers in both situations? Jeff's situation and in the situation of somebody ending the life of their child in the womb? Who suffers most? It's the innocent one. I hope and pray that if you are a leader, that you would be soaked in God's word so that you would not be warped to this kind of evil. The evil of this world, they might lead wisely and, sh and help people in your care move towards life rather than move towards death. Some people have suggested that Jeff wouldn't have actually sacrificed his daughter, but instead she had some kind of perpetual 
um, virginity or like she was exiled or something like that. But the text is pretty clear that it says, I will sacrifice as a burnt offering. And then later on, when his daughter comes out, it says, and he did to her what he had said. It seems to imply to us that he followed through. So this is an awful, awful stain on what seemed like was such a good, good run for Jeff. What we end up with next is internal conflict. There's jealousy and pride amongst the tribes that is fueling conflict. A short time later, the fellows from Ephraim rock up and they're incensed that they weren't invited to the battles with Ammon. This is moving into chapter 12. And how come you didn't take us with us, take us with you to beat up the Ammonites? Now, you might remember Gideon had a similar situation where Ephraim said, hey, you didn't invite us to the party. And Gideon was able to calm the situation down. But not so this time. Ephraim is upset and Jeff said, look, I invited you and you didn't come, so I had to go and do it myself. And in fact, God blessed me with victory. So Ephraim starts attacking the Gileadites. And this is, this is a terrible place to come to. This is, um, so now the people of Israel aren't fighting against their enemies around them, they're fighting each other. They didn't care about the facts, like Ammon didn't care about the facts. And they decided they were going to fight each other. And so Jephthah has another victory, but this is a terrible victory and and a bittersweet victory of having 42,000 of his countrymen killed. You know, we have friendly rivalries, right? We might might talk about those New South Welshmen or other such things, but, you know, obviously it's just friendly banter. None of us actually want to go to war with any of the other states. But this is how far things have generated in Israel, where their clansmen, their kinsmen, the people who they were related to by blood, their countrymen, were attacking one another. Instead of saying, thanks for defending off the, the, the attackers, we owe you one, they say, let's go to war against one another, brother against brother. It reminds us, of course, of the internal strife that we see in the church. This is God's people back in that time. The Israel was the, is, is, the, um, is the synonym for God's people. Israel was internally in conflict, but the church today is in conflict. There is an appropriate level of conflict in the sense of weeding out corruption, false teaching, that kind of thing. But the church itself should not be focused on dealing with internal battles. We don't want to have to be defending ourselves against, uh, against one another when we should be collectively together facing the commission that God has given us. And then lastly, we get these later years with Jephthah where he, he rules for another six years as the unlikely saviour of Gilead. He reigns as a judge and then he dies. And we might ask ourselves in the modern parlance, is Jeff a Christian? Well, he's held up as an example of faith by the author of Hebrews. Jephthah, who through faith conquered kingdoms. So despite the, the terrible, awful choice with his rash vow, 
and his questionable background, God uses Jeff as his tool and an icon of what it looks like to be faithful in Yahweh. If Jeff, with all his baggage, can be, and, and the terrible, terrible mistakes that he made, can be an icon of faith, then there is hope for us. That no matter what we've done, no matter if we've been a bikey gangster, like Jeff, no matter if we have done terrible things, no matter if we have uh, questionable parentage or connections to family, doesn't matter. God can use whoever. He can save whoever. He can save and use you. And as we close, it reminds us of our unlikely saviour. While there's great many object lessons to be learned from Jeff's strife and life and actions, the key message that we should take from this story and the rest of Judges is that God's people need something more than a human judge who will save them and only rule for a time. Jeff, the judge, reminds us of our need for a better judge, one that doesn't harm his children, one that doesn't run off his mouth. We need an unlikely saviour who was born in illegitimate son, so to speak. He was born to a poor regional family. We need an unlikely saviour who was not accepted by his family for some of his life, was rejected for a time. We have an unlikely saviour who went out into the wilderness and who gathered around him, not a band of scoundrels, but a band of misfits nonetheless, and sinners our unlikely saviour appeared to have triumph as he rode into Jerusalem on the donkey and they were singing Hosanna to the son of David. But the tragedy seemed to, the triumph turned to tragedy when he was crucified a few days later. Our unlikely saviour was ultimately victorious over our enemies within and without. But unlike the unlikely saviour, Jeff, our unlikely saviour's rule will never end. Our unlikely saviour is Christ. He came on behalf of the Father in heaven to save his people. And anybody who turns to him in repentance and faith can find that salvation. Nothing can separate his people from him. So give yourself to him and his rule. Do not be found opposing God, but come under his salvation in Jesus Christ. Come to Christ. Christ will overcome all of our enemies. Christ will overcome all those things that would feel like they should separate you from him. And as God's people, we no longer need to offer up sacrifices of the physical kind to assuage God's wrath. Rather, Christ is our once-for-all sacrifice, and we offer up spiritual sacrifices out of love and devotion, not trying to earn our place as his people, or like Jeff trying to manipulate God, I'll give you something if you give me something. No, he gives freely. And we receive from him with grace in his grace our spiritual sacrifices come out of a changed heart that we offer now a changed heart that seeks god in his kingdom not trying to get something from god we have an unlikely savior who has brought us an eternal redemption let's pray to him heavenly father we thank you for jesus our better savior who seemed the unlikeliest of people, yet he was our saviour. And we thank you for a saviour who does not harm those under his care, but who leads and protects them. We thank you, Lord, 
for a saviour whose salvation is eternal, everlasting. We thank you, Lord, for this saviour who defeats the enemies that we face of Satan, sin and death. We thank you for him. In Jesus' name.